That indeed is our prayer and our hope with your word. Would you bless us by it? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing our look in the Psalms. So open your Bibles with me. I hope you brought them to Psalm 85. Psalm 85. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's word? To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Silah. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is God's word. Please have a seat. Have you ever had one of those moments when you sit back and you take stock of your life and find that it is just not where you want it to be? Or worse, you find that it's not, not only is it not where you want it to be, but you feel so far removed from the place that you want it to be that you just want to curl up and disappear. These are times in life when you need what they call revival. And it's true not only at the individual level, but also at the national level. Revival is something that many people across this country have been praying for for quite a while. And as much as modern academia wants to rewrite American history, there certainly was a time when the Puritans arrived with the vision of starting something new. John Withrop said about their endeavor in coming to America, We shall be a city on a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. Just as he says in Matthew 5.14, Jesus tells his followers, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. And so the Puritans set out to build a society committed to the teaching of Christ. And while the gospel can be found in places in the United States today, biblical teaching is far from embraced in the public square. And where it is embraced, it is not acknowledged as owing to God. And so people, again, for decades within the church, have prayed for revival of our nation. Sadly, however, I think many have reached a point of pessimism about our country. While there are testimonies of newfound faith, they seem more the aberration than the norm. And just as we can see this pessimism sweeping over our hope for revival as a nation, it is not far off to feel that pessimism creep into our hope for revival of our persons as well. So let me ask you again this morning, are you, are you there? Are you looking for revival but feel that hope 
is simply too far gone. Psalms like this one, Psalm 85, which is a prayer for revival, help to breathe life into us at times like this. They remind us that there is real hope. This psalm is seeking that. It is seeking revival for a people, for a nation, for the nation specifically of Israel. But in so doing, we see the reasons for hope that also speak to the weary individual soul. And I want to walk through this psalm to see how it moves us away from the pessimism as we look back at the past and see the slow downward decay, whether it's of our nation or of ourselves, to a place where we can have real hope that God will do something different to revive us. I want to look first at the present situation in which the psalmist finds himself. The the psalm is is neatly broken up into kind of a, a past Here's what's happened in the past, here's what's happening in the present, and here's what's going to happen in the future. But to really understand, I want to start with the present, which happens to be found in the middle of the psalm. It's really the heart of the prayer of what the psalmist is is asking. And we find it beginning with verse 4. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. So whatever the specific circumstances are, we know that the psalmist is feeling this great need for revival, that that for some reason God's heavy hand has been upon them, and they're not experiencing what Israel once has experienced with regard to the favor of God. And so we see this prayer go out. And Psalms don't often explicitly give us their historical context that might help us to understand why the psalmist may have written. And I think there are probably good reasons why they don't do that, so that we can see that there are principles at play rather than just specifics that have to do with one particular time in Israel's history. But if we had to take a gander and a guess of when this might have been, as commentators have tried to do, most likely we would find it to be a time after they had returned from their exile. Now, if you're not that familiar with Israel's history, just to give you a little bit of background to know what's going on, uh, you know, the, the nation of Israel really started with the call of a man named Abraham. Abraham was told, you will be my people, you and your children and your descendants after you, and I want to make you some pretty great promises. I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to take you and show you this land. So, this was the initial beginning of the people of Israel. But Israel had quite an interesting history in that they would time and again fall into all kinds of problems and need all kinds of restoration or revival from the Lord. Israel, as a people, had seen God do great things to make them His own. It was not only the promises that He had given to Abraham, but it was the fulfillment of many of those promises to make that be a reality. For Abraham and his descendants, as you may know the story, as they they grew in number, and eventually there was a famine in the land, they escaped Egypt where there was grain, but eventually they became slaves in Egypt and had to be rescued. 
And God had raised up Moses in response to their prayers for help, who led them out of the land of Egypt with the great and mighty works of the ten plagues. And you know the story of the, the waters being parted, them passing through the waters, them crashing down in the Egyptian army, setting them free, bringing them to a place where God had previously met Moses on a mountain called Mount Sinai, where He had given them specifically a revelation of who God was. And in essence, He had given them a description of what is their relationship to God meant to be. He entered into what they call a covenant with His people, these promises with His people. And the best way to understand that, that kind of relationship, the best perhaps relationship in our day that we could liken it to would be a marriage. Think of it as a marriage to the Lord, but Israel was not faithful to God, had pursued the gods of the peoples in the lands of Canaan, and each time they did, God gave them over to the consequences of their own bad choices, and the neighboring nations would oppress them. And time and again, however, they cried out to God and He would deliver them. And yet, as the centuries rolled on, Israel's faithlessness to their God wavered and brought about their worst fear, not just an oppressing neighbor but a complete destruction of a nation as they were carried off into exile. The nation no longer existed. Now, if that indeed is the setting, there is, there is a time of after this exile that the psalmist is praying, you can imagine there being reason to have some measure of hopelessness. I could only see that it could have overtaken very easily all those people in the land. It was as if their marriage to God was suddenly ended. And it wouldn't be a surprise. I mean, having failed so many times and feeling the consequences that were, that were so hard, it's easy to see not only that they felt hopeless, but that they felt deserved and right in what they were experiencing. God had left them. In seminary, we were assigned a book to read in one of our classes. It was really a life-changing book for me. Uh, some of you have perhaps read this book. It's a book by Jerry Bridges called Transforming Grace. An entity described an experience that resonates, I think, with a lot of people. We want to think that God loves us because we have earned it. We want to think of ourselves as better than our neighbor. In fact, if you ask most people who say they believe in God, whether or not God will let them into heaven, the answer is most often, well, yes. And if you ask them why, they would say, well, because I haven't done anything terrible, because I've tried to be a good person. And as they look at themselves and measure themselves against the neighbors or their friends or their other people around them, it's easy for them to think, oh, well, you know, in comparison, I look pretty good. And that can get you by for a while perhaps even years. But eventually, you will experience what the psalmist experiences. Your life is in need of revival because you have failed one too many times. One too many times. You will find yourself in the situation that Israel found themselves in. We have been faithless to God one too many times, and now we don't exist as a nation. Each failure leaves you feeling less hopeful that God will forgive you. 
Each failure brings you closer to self-loathing. And if you loathe you, how much more must God loathe you? Have you ever been there? Where you think that way about yourself? So you might ask God to forgive you, but you don't expect Him to. In fact, there's some measure of you that doesn't want Him to because you know you don't deserve it. In fact, you feel like you have failed Him too many times for Him to look on favor with you. There's reason for the Israelites to be in that situation. So when they read this prayer offered by one of the sons of Korah, I think it's a prayer that gives them a measure of hope. Now I want to look back at the past because the past is really the reason why the psalmist is able to have hope. And we find that in the opening verses of this psalm. So look with me at verses 1 through 3. Lord, You were favorable to Your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of Your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all Your wrath. You turned from Your hot anger. So here the psalmist is referencing the track record of God. You've already done these things, God. You have shown Yourself to be a God who does these things. You have been favorable to Your land. You have restored the fortunes of Jacob. You have forgiven or you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. This is what God has done in the past. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. He is pleading for restoration again. There's this idea that it's repeated. It's repeated. It's repeated. And as you think about that, your own prayer, perhaps going to the Lord and praying, God, once again, I know I'm bad. I know I'm evil. I know I've done wicked things. I know I've failed you. And you feel that again nature of your own sin bring you down and down and down and give you more and more reason not to have any hope that God is going to do anything about it. The again nature brings you lower and lower and lower. And at the same time, this is what's so interesting, at the same time, the again nature of this prayer is the very thing that gives the psalmist hope. Because he's not, the, the again nature isn't the fact that Israel has sinned. The again nature is that God has forgiven, that God has restored. In fact, those two things go hand in hand. If there is not this repeated nature of our own sin, we would not be able to see the repeated nature of God's faithfulness to His people. Not that it isn't there. It's always been there. It's the nature and character of God. But it's a nature and character of God that cannot be seen until it's visible in light of the again nature of your repeated and repeated, repeated failure and backsliding and guilt. That's what comes out. That's what comes out. And if you think about Israel's past, we've talked about how God had brought them and made them a people, calling Abraham, uh, multiplying them, bringing them out of Egypt under Moses. But not long after Moses, they had marched into the land that God had promised them and occupied the land. But while they were there, they had often forgotten God. And this began a great cycle that we see. Judges, if you want to think of one word that characterizes or the description of the book of Judges, it would be cycles. They go through these cycles of faithfulness and falling away, falling into oppression, crying out to God for help, God raising up a judge to deliver them, and having a time of revival. 
This was the cycle, and it repeats over and over and over again throughout the book of Judges. This is their cycle. So, what's on display is, yes, very clearly, the the people are wayward. (laughs) But more of what's on display is that God's faithfulness to His people, His steadfastness, is immovable. By the way, that's what steadfast means. It stands fast no matter what comes along to try and move it. The steadfast love of God will always prevail against the again repeated nature of our own sinful wayward ways. That's the appeal that the psalmist is making and the reason why he's offering hope to the congregation who may be feeling this sense of emptiness in their own nation and in their own lives. That's the appeal. Now, it, if you want to think specifically about a time in Israel's life, which one of these times was it that the psalm was offering this prayer? And I, I think as we read verses 1 through 3, as we look at those again, Lord, You were favorable to Your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of Your people. He's really not referring to this repeated act, even though that's very clearly the cycle of Israel. He's referring to some specific action that has happened in the past. You did forgive the iniquity of the people. Now, with such an event, I think there's only really one thing that can qualify for the time in Israel's history, and that was not only a time after the exile, but a time after they had returned from exile. And the returning of exile would have been the thing that allows the, 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 uh, the psalmist to say, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You were favorable to your land by sending back those who were in exile. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You sent them back under Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel. You forgave the iniquity of your people, even though they had been faithless to you. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. So there is this time in which they have already been restored in this great restoration. But if you're familiar with reading the account of what happens after they've been returned to the land, it's not not the most encouraging read. (laughs) Yes, they are restored. Yes, they begin to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But they are far from a new people. They are far from a new people. The restoration of the land, it wasn't also a surprise to those who are familiar with the Old Testament prophets, for they often prophesied about this. We find it, for example, in Isaiah 57, as Isaiah repeatedly tells them hundreds of years or a hundred years before the exile even happens, he says, look, you are going to be carried into exile. It's going to happen. God is going to carry you away because you have been faithless to your covenant. But He will restore you again. So, as we read from Isaiah 57, and it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove any... Remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. 
For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the Spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the, the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. I have seen his ways, and I was angry, but I will heal him. Verse 18. I have seen his ways, and I was angry, but I will heal him. That is the essence of God's character, especially the one that we're seeing on display in this psalm. It doesn't deny the abysmal failure of His people. It doesn't deny the reality of what they have deserved. And yet, seeing this in full view as as Isaiah acknowledges it, feeling the sting of His people's betrayal, as God does, He still says, I will heal Him. It was always God's intent, and the people's return from exile was the result of that restoration. So they see it happening. And yet, when you read the story of Israel's return, as we mentioned already, it's not all that encouraging. The people still show their lack of faith in God as they grow complacent in fear and are slow to rebuild. The wealthy take advantage of the poor, and they intermingle with those who worship foreign gods. So while this restoration, this return from exile is a restoration fulfillment, at least on some level that can can satisfy these great prophecies of the prophets of the Old Testament, there is a sense in which the grandiose nature of these promises have yet to be fulfilled. It was a restoration, but it wasn't enough for real change of heart. So there is a future aspect to this prayer. And the future aspect of this prayer we see because there are seeds of hope planted in that very return from exile that the psalmist continues his prayer with one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. We use it this morning as our call to worship, found in verses 8 through 13. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace to His people, to His saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. I love that phrase, he says in verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Here are the character qualities of God on display. On display so well in the patience of God in His repeated, repeated, repeated forgiveness and deliverance of His people throughout all of their history. Steadfast love points to the fact that, as we said earlier, God's love is immovable. It stands fast no matter what forces would come up against it. And I want you to think about that. What forces 
do you think would, would allow you to pray to God and yet be hopeless in your prayer that He would forgive you? What is it about your own life prevents you from seeing that God could ever love you? Because that's what you have to put up as the obstacle standing in the way of God's love, trying to knock it down. But what is true? His love is steadfast. It is steadfast. Even your self-loathing cannot stand up against the love of God, no matter how often it might threaten to get in the way. God's faithfulness means He will remain true to you even when you have not remained true to Him. And then the psalmist continues, righteousness and peace kiss each other. And what does that mean? Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Well, what is God's righteousness? It points to His uprightness, if you want to think about it in the most simple terms, His perfection, and by virtue of that, His justice. God's righteousness demands holiness and requires that His justice be satisfied. And yet this righteousness and peace kiss each other. How is it that this wayward people continually going their own way and backsliding in their promises to be faithful to God can face the righteousness of God and yet find peace? This was the question, I think, that Martin Luther was wrestled with for so long in his own life. He would read from the book of Romans and despair as he came across the opening verses, well, in verses 16 and 17, when Paul writes about what is the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Martin Luther would always read this phrase, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. He would read that as the, the perfection of God is so revealed that His justice is coming down. The gospel wasn't good news for Martin Luther. It was terrifying news for Martin Luther because righteousness of God was being revealed. And in its reflection, the exposure of the wicked was, was visible. But Paul, of course, writes it as good news. He says it's the power of God for salvation, not for judgment, but for salvation, for righteousness and peace to kiss each other, to come together means the justice of God, as it is revealed in the righteousness of God, has to somehow be satisfied. And that, of course, is the very story of the gospel that Paul is laying out in the book of Romans. How shall the righteous live? They shall live not by their own merits, but by faith, by faith in the fact that God's love is immovable and that your sin, your guilt, your waywardness cannot stand in its way. Yes, you deserve every measure of justice that you think you deserve, and ten times more. And yet, when the justice of God was revealed, when the righteousness of God was revealed, it was revealed both in the justice that, that, 
poured out upon the person of Jesus Christ and in the rightness of Jesus Christ's life, which then became credited by faith to those whose faith is in Him. So that you move from the place of being guilty before God and deserving that that exile to the place of having a right standing before God. So that when righteousness of God is revealed, there is still peace. For there is peace. Because the righteous requirements of the law have been satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. And this speaks to that one who finds himself spiraling down in his own sin, his own cycles of backsliding. How many times have you gone before the Lord and confessed the same sin over and over and over and over again? To the point where you find yourself in utter despair because you said, I've already been here, I've already done that, and I've failed to overcome it. And here I am again, Lord. I hate myself. And that self-loathing, which so often wants to stand in the way of God's love, can't do it. Because it's not your track record that gives you hope. It's God's track record that gives you hope. And the ultimate display of that restoration from exile was in the complete satisfaction of God's justice for your failures which is what we see on the cross when Jesus was crucified. God made Him who had no sin to be sin, so that in Him you might become the righteousness of God in Christ. That's the reality. And that's what the psalmist is speaking to. So it speaks to that aspect of, yes, we need revival. We need personal revival. But we also need a people revival. Now, while in the Old Testament they could certainly speak of a revival of a nation, we have to translate that to be a revival of a people. Rather than applying that to, we need God to to bring revival to the United States or to some other country, you fill in the blank, I would say we need God to bring revival to His church, to His people. Because we are a church in continual need of revival. And while there is the peace with God that we experience as a result of that, I love what else is true and what he says in this psalm. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in your land, in your church, in your people, that glory may dwell there. And then he goes on to say, In verse 12, yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. And our people, our church, will yield its increase. I was thinking about this on a personal level, you know, as a pastor. And, and, you know, unless you've been a pastor, some of you have out there, you know what it's like. But a pastor can, can, you know, embrace his calling as a pastor with all kinds of zeal, when he initially goes into it. He's all excited. He's got all this energy. But you know what time does to that zeal and energy and excitement? It just sucks it out of him. <laughs> it just does. Eat till they get ready. <laughs> it just does. There is a continual need, not just on the, you know, the level of forgive me of my sin, Lord, but forgive me of my weariness. 
It's not just that you will reassure me that, yes, I'm right in your sight, restore to me the joy of my salvation, but allow our land to increase, allow our church to grow, allow our zeal for our ministry and our calling to be reinvigorated. All of that revival is associated with this very thing. They go hand in hand. I know I'm moving to personal application here, but I think it's relevant. What kind of revival are you in need of this morning? Because the gospel speaks to it. The psalmist gives us a model of prayer, reassuring us that God's love is immovable because we look back at the track record of God. And where the track record of God puts on, what it puts on display is the fact that Righteousness and peace kiss each other on the cross. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the Psalms which show us a path to revival, which show us the prayer, Lord, that gives us hope and faith to know that you have not abandoned your people and that you will never abandon your people that your track record is true. So, Lord, I pray that as we go forth from here this morning, that you would revive our spirits, you would revive our faith, you would revive our energy for our calling, you would revive us in the various ways that we need revival, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.